Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And today we're covering the murders of Richard and Marilyn Cannonan by their son Rick or Ricky Cannonan. This case is interesting in part because Rick commits murder as a youthful offender and as an adult offender. A quick heads up. This episode contains instances of murder, physical and sexual abuse, chicanery, and deceit. If you like the Parasite Podcast, please follow us on your preferred podcast platform so we can notify you of each episode as it is produced. Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies, ashes, ashes, we all fall down. We talked a little bit about booty bumpers in our Love Letters from Hell episode that covered the case of Mary Amber Bray. If you have not yet listened to episode 9, you might want to go do that now. Booty bumpers appear to be accomplices, but they are actually the driving force behind the murder of their parent. They want their parent or parents dead and seek out a person who would kill for them. They use sex and relationships to find just the right person to be the hitman for the deed. They differ from parental predators, like Derek's dad in our No Men, No Tights episode. Parental predators engage the services of their own child to get rid of their spouse. This episode is a different twist on the same theme. Rick kills both of his parents, but it's not like you're imagining. You'll just have to listen and find out. Richard Alfred Cannonan and Marilyn Reagan met and fell in love in Quincy, Massachusetts. It was an unusual relationship from the outset. He was 21 and a big gruff guy with tattoos like skulls, swords, snakes, and crossbones. This was back in a time when tattoos were not really a thing unless you were an ex-convict or a sailor. He mostly worked in the shipyard, so the rough demeanor did seem to fit somewhat. She was 16 and petite. Wow, she was only 16? Is that even legal to get married at that age? I'm not sure. Every state has different laws, and I am not sure what Massachusetts laws were at the time. I wonder if she had to get parental consent. Possibly. That's interesting. You're right, that is an unusual couple. Despite the difference in age, they got married and set out on a vagabond life, scamming many and moving often and sometimes in the middle of the night with little notice to avoid trouble. They must have been pretty good at sensing trouble because they didn't have arrest records floating around in the wake of their many moves. Although Richard was said to be an ex-convict, I couldn't find record of that. They moved as they brought their three children into the world. Rick first, named for his father, then eight years later Cheryl, and then about two years after that, Stacy. Okay, so Rick was eight years older than Cheryl and ten years older than Stacy, but Cheryl and Stacy were pretty close in age. Yes, they were. Okay. The family moved to Maine, Arkansas, Idaho, Oklahoma, Minnesota, New Mexico, Alabama, Wisconsin, California, and a few more states before finally settling in Orlando, Florida. They were home. 
Richard and Marilyn bought a house in Florida in 1979. Okay, so these kids had a pretty hectic childhood with all of those moves. A very chaotic childhood. It didn't matter how you sliced it, Richard Cannonan was not one of the good guys. Richard was said to be violent and erratic, as well as a terrible father. His anger and his violence did seem to be predicated on his bouts of drinking. His family was socially isolated, the kids weren't allowed to have friends over to the house, and there was a strict rule that anything that happened in the house was required to stay in the house. Anyone who broke that rule would suffer dire consequences. Their dad was very vested in keeping the family's secrets intact, most likely to protect his shady dealings and to hide abuse. He is alleged to have taken out every bad mood and every frustration on the kids and their mother. Richard also kept everyone on a very tight time schedule, demanding they return home shortly after activities of which he would approve. Curiously, he did not seem to heap abuse on Stacy in the same way he did the older two children. But Stacy said she was physically and sexually abused quite a bit. He would also constantly tell both Rick and Cheryl that his only biological child was Stacy. And according to Cheryl, they believed him. So Stacy was the youngest right. and also abused, but mm-hmm. everyone had the impression that she was his only biological child and therefore favored. Yes, um, both Rick and Cheryl believed that she was not really abused, but she says that's not true. Okay, and it's hard. Kids don't always see all the abuse that happens to each other, so their perceptions might be different. Right. We're really not sure. By the time the reports of abuse were coming out, both of the parents were dead. Yeah, and it was a while in the past, so their memories might not necessarily match up. And they also could find benefit in claiming abuse. So there's a lot there that could be happening or could not be happening, but we do know that they were abused kids. Mm-hmm. That much is clear. Yes. Richard often went after their mother. He reportedly beat her, menaced her, cut her, thrashed her, and would banish her from the home on cold winter nights. What do you mean by banish her from the home? He would make her go out on a cold evening and sleep outside. That's horrible. I agree. Stacy's attorney, Diana Tennis, in an interview with Find My Killer, claimed Richard Cannonan was just a horrific, mean, drunk, awful person, by all accounts. These accusations are confirmed by longtime family and friends. Rick claims that his father was a brutal disciplinarian. He would allegedly beat the kids until they were unconscious. That's a little more than discipline. It absolutely is. When they lived in Maine, he'd once chained Rick to the family doghouse for three days and told him to stay. And Rick alleges his father also molested him from the age of six until around the age of 11. He never specified what would happen, but he did allege that something did happen. Okay. Richard was particularly abusive with Rick. He would lock him in a closet and then shoot at the closet door, seeing if he could hit Rick, who was trapped inside. This is not coming from Rick. This is coming from his sister, Cheryl, who watched this. He would put chains on Rick and force him to work outside in the field without food or water. Rick stated in court that he never interceded on behalf of his mother or siblings when they were being beaten. But this statement was contradicted by both of his sisters. Yeah, his testimony was a little confusing at times. 
Um, and it doesn't make sense that he would deny protecting them when a lot of his self-image was this protector of others. Right. Marilyn would intercede at times. Other times she would reportedly physically abuse the kids herself, as per Rick. But his sisters say that this is not true at all. Okay, so Rick says that mom was also abusive, but the girls don't remember that? Rick did not claim his mother was abusive until after he had confessed to murdering her. So it kind of seems that that claim may have been a bit self-serving. Okay. Rick liked stories where he was the hero from a young age. At Stacy's trial, Cheryl told a story that seems to be a sibling myth that served to make Rick a hero while making the girls feel unloved and imperiled. One night when they were living in Maine, which was the late 60s or the early 70s, the house started on fire with everyone in it. Cheryl said she and Stacy were saved by Rick, who climbed a ladder to their second-story bedroom and shattered a window to retrieve both of his young sisters. Once outside, they realized their parents were both already out there. Marilyn was sitting in the car crying, and Richard was off talking to a firefighter. Richard and Marilyn seemed dismayed to see that they'd made it out alive. Then, it happened again, in a second house in Minnesota. So, that sounds very suspicious, but also almost unbelievable, mostly because... How did the firefighters not stop a young boy from putting a ladder against a burning house? Well, the story does sound a lot like a teenage boy made it up and told it to his sisters. And no one can really remember the second fire. It's just talked about by Rick. Okay, so his sisters may remember this mostly based on a story that he told. And maybe there was just one fire. But Rick tends to kind of spin stories where he's the hero and he's this valiant protector of the innocent anyway. Oh, well, later on, Rick starts writing a book where he literally is like a superhero who is saving children who have been abused by their parents. But he's not a superhero with a superpower. He's a superhero who knows how to break laws. We'll talk about it a little bit later in the podcast. Okay. After his graduation, Rick reportedly went off to attend college in Wisconsin. He only stayed one semester, and his family moved from Minnesota to Florida while he was gone. He had helped in the move to Florida, driving one of their vehicles all the way down there. After the move, he decided to move to Florida himself to live with his family. But he was told he needed to get a place of his own because Richard had yet another rule. Once you move out of the house, you are never, ever coming back, and you were to go no contact without his permission with all of the family who remained in the home. Okay, so once you were an outsider by moving out, you were never allowed back in. Right. His father told him to stay away from the entire family and not to contact his sisters, or his dad would accuse him of molesting them and get him thrown in jail. After that, he was only allowed in the family home when invited, usually to help his dad with occasional chores. Only Marilyn, Stacy, and Richard were living together at that point, 
Rick got married and Cheryl was planning to get married. But now we need to go back in time again so we can talk about Stacy, who's the baby of the family. Stacy remembers being molested for the first time at the age of four by her father who allegedly plied her with alcohol first. She was molested several times in her life up until the time she left home. When she was in the sixth grade and they were living in Arkansas, her parents were fighting and her father decided he was going to take his girls and leave. At that point, Stacy would have been 11 or 12, so Rick was already out of the house. Oh, okay. So her father drove to the town bar and got drunk while his young daughters were waiting in the car. The girls then endured a drunken ride back home where Richard told his wife that Stacy would be sleeping with him and she would have to make other accommodations. And she didn't find that strange? I think this happened quite a bit. It sounds like he determined sleeping arrangements every night. Oh. Stacy alleges he took her to his room and raped her while holding a gun in her mouth. She does not have fond memories of her father. Not only was he abusive in every meaning of the word, he was also a lever. He would ditch his family for days at a time. In the documentary Find My Killer, Stacy said he had disappeared for two weeks when they lived in Arkansas, and it was the best two weeks of their lives. But then he came back, and it went right back to bad. It sounds like he was just a nightmare. It does sound like he was a nightmare, and... The children called him it or monster. They would call him the monster, and that kind of tells you a little bit about their relationship with him. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what about Cheryl? Cheryl alleged that her father had routinely locked her mother out of the house when she was 9 or 10 years old. He would make her go into his bedroom, but then she would blank out what happened while she was there. She claims to have no memory of what happened. When she was older, she would come home from being with her friends to find her father hiding in her room, waiting for her. He also beat her on a regular basis, often leaving numerous bruises. But her mother played like it wasn't happening, and when she confronted her mother, her mother told her she was a liar. That's awful. I feel really bad for all of them. Well, it's just hard when you're already being abused to be gaslit by the other parent about your abuse. Right. But when you are the abused parent who is trying to keep everyone alive, I think you sometimes do gaslight your kids. Yeah, because if she it, confronted it, she'd have to do something about it. If she confronted it, they might all be dead. Mm -hmm. I don't think she felt she was in a position to do anything about it, which I'm not sure the kids could even begin to understand. Yeah, that's a really hard situation. It is. He had also threatened Cheryl when she was a child, telling her that if she ever had any children of her own, he would hurt them. She also states she never saw her little sister Stacy being abused by Richard. She moved out of the house on the day she turned 19 after her father had beaten her up and then said, oh, happy birthday. In 1988, 24-year-old Cheryl was planning her wedding. It was to be a secret wedding because she didn't want her dad to be there. Everyone was sworn to secrecy, and many of her extended family were making noises like they may not come to the wedding so they could avoid Richard. They were not only afraid of him, 
they didn't want to witness his threats coming true because Richard had threatened to kill both the bride and the groom during the ceremony, so a secret wedding seemed to be her best option. But two weeks before her wedding date, Rick had visited her and said he had an early wedding present for her. Dad's gone, she recalled him saying. Trust me, he added, he won't be coming back. With him gone, Cheryl was able to have the wedding she'd wanted, a peaceful union to the man she loved. But Rick was right. Richard was gone, and he was never coming back. I'm sure that felt like the best wedding gift in the world. Yes, but I think they all expected Richard to come back at that point, at least the ones who weren't in the know. Yeah, so probably they thought he was gone, like he'd been gone for two weeks, but he always came back. What do you mean by in the know? Well, when it comes to this family, a lot of times everyone knows the secret except for one person. And in this case, Cheryl was the one who was out of the loop. And when you look at it, Cheryl is usually the one who's out of the loop. I'm suspecting it's because she was pretty kind and she was very ethical. In fact, if this were the Munsters, she would be Marilyn Munster, the pretty normal girl who was looked down upon by the rest of the family because she was different. Everybody kept their secrets from her. Anyway, these kids were terrified of their father during their childhoods and throughout their young adult lives. They didn't believe in the boogeyman because their dad was worse than even the boogeyman. But, like I said, on September 10, 1988, everybody's lives changed for the better. 55-year-old Richard was just gone. He'd seemingly vanished into thin air and Everybody seemed to breathe a collective sigh of relief. Well, that's completely understandable, but weren't they surprised when he never came back? It sounds like he'd only disappeared for two weeks at a time before. Yes, and things did get a little weird. Nobody seemed to miss Richard, and nobody reported him missing. No one cared that he was gone. But people did casually ask after Richard when they noticed his absence. Everybody knew something was amiss. Marilyn's family suspected he was dead, but nobody was saying a word. At first, Marilyn told her sister that Richard had gone on a drunken, gun-wielding rage that had gotten him arrested. She claimed he was ordered to leave the state of Florida and never come back. Wow, that's kind of a crazy story. Especially when you know how wild Florida is. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Then she told neighbors and friends that Richard had simply moved back to Massachusetts. But she told others that she and Richard were divorcing. Marilyn's sister didn't trust her after all the years of Marilyn's and Richard's scamming, and she knew better than to take her sister at her word. She searched arrest records and divorce records, and there was no indication that any of Marilyn's stories held a thread of truth. Richard had most definitely not been arrested, neither had he been run out of town, and there were never any divorce papers filed on either side. Okay, so someone thought this was strange. Yes. But not strange enough that she called the police? No, she didn't. I guess a lot of times people go, well, I don't know what happened, and all's well that ends well. Yay, he's gone. Yes. Yeah, kind of that sort of thing. Right. But Richard's disability checks from the Social Security office kept coming every month. When asked about them, Marilyn told her sister she was faithfully forwarding them to Richard every month, but she was really just cashing them. 
The Social Security Administration claims Marilyn defrauded them of more than $100,000, but they didn't know anything about that until after she was dead. Her sister said her distrust of Marilyn just got stronger and stronger over the years. Okay, so it sounds like she was not the most upstanding citizen either. Nobody really trusted Rick either. He was 32 years old when he told Cheryl about her early wedding gift. His own marriage was a rough one. He had married a woman who was almost two decades older than he was. She was a woman who seemed to be very pious and quite humble, which was an odd foil to his personality, which is reported to be much like his father's. It did last for quite some time, but they split about a year before he murdered his mother. He became a bit of a loner and a drifter, like his parents had been. He spent several years just coming to visit on occasion, but mostly he wasn't where his family could find him. His occupation was listed as handyman. He would do electrical work, painting, moving, landscaping, anything that he was asked or hired to do. But it isn't really clear if he was working anywhere. He says he wasn't. Okay, so he kind of never settled in anywhere. No, he didn't. Stacy, at some point after her dad's disappearance, met a woman named Susan and fell in love. This relationship was to last, so far, for her lifetime. Stacy was employed at Disney World as a sales associate and was building a very nice life with Susan, with her dad out of the picture. She and her mom celebrated holidays together and would often throw family get-togethers. And Cheryl... She appeared to be happily married, busy rearing her three children and working to build a nice life with her husband. Okay, so was Cheryl not as close with their mom? Cheryl spent a lot of time with their mother and lived quite close to their mother. Stacy, when she first moved in with Susan, lived in Kasami, which is quite a ways away. She actually moved closer to her mother after their grandfather dies. Okay. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Approximately one year after Richard's disappearance, Marilyn's parents, so the kids' grandparents, Lawrence and Mary Reagan, moved to Florida from Massachusetts. Mary was quite ill and was transported by air ambulance with the hopes that Cheryl, who was now a nurse, could help nurse her back to health. Mary resided in a nursing home, but she did die shortly thereafter, and Lawrence lived with Marilyn in her home. The kids were all grown, and Marilyn enjoyed having her dad around. Marilyn had a good job in the finance department of the Delta Connection Academy. This is a prestigious flight school from which a lot of commercial pilots are hired. She had found that job after Richard disappeared. Okay, that's nice that she got a career started for herself, a legitimate career. Yes, and she had time to enjoy family and fun. Rick would now drop by and visit both his mother and his grandfather. Cheryl and her family, who I said lived about two blocks away, would get together often with Marilyn. Marilyn loved her grandchildren and was a very good grandmother to them. Then, on November 26, 2002, which was Thanksgiving, her father died. It was common knowledge that Marilyn would come into a tidy sum of money when her father died. She had cared for him for several years, and he had added her name to his bank account to ensure the money went directly to her. How much money did he end up leaving her? It was approximately $260,000. Wow, that's a lot of money. It is. Somewhere along the way, this inheritance came to be seen by Rick as Grandpa's money. 
and he developed a very entitled attitude toward it. He didn't seem to understand that upon Grandpa's passing, this money rightfully became Marilyn's money. About six months after his grandfather died, Rick quit living his vagabond life and seemed to settle in with his sister Stacy. She and Susan had just bought a new home, which was very close to Marilyn, with plenty of room for her brother to stay with them. Although Marilyn complained to a co-worker that she felt Rick and Stacy lived too close and it felt like they were watching her, the family was glad to have Rick back. For a few months, the family seemed happy and content. They celebrated Easter, cooked out on Memorial Day, hung out on the 4th of July as a family. They even had a weekly family game night. All seemed copacetic. Well, it's nice. It's nice to see that they were able to have a few years where they got along as a family. Sadly, it was not a few years. It was only a few months, from April until September when she died. Oh, that isn't very long at all. No, it isn't. Peace and happiness in this family is always short-lived. A couple of things went sideways, and Rick used these scenarios as reasons to murder his mother. Rick had a lot of stories about what happened here but his stories are often conflicting and ever-changing. In fact, they substantively changed several times. Rick never really did choose a lane regarding what happened to his mother, even at Stacy's trial. He moved among all of the narratives we're about to discuss here, never acknowledging that they conflicted with each other. He talked about each of them throughout his testimony. First... Their sister, Cheryl, had been having some problems with her 12-year-old son. Uncle Rick spent considerable amounts of time with Cheryl's young son. Together, they were creating a memorial garden for their grandfather, and Rick would regale him with tales of how he was the protector of children who were egregiously abused by their parents. He told him he traveled through the country helping kids who had been abused. In fact, he was even writing a book about vigilante justice in which he was the star character. He boasted that he could kill abusive parents and make it look accidental. He could plant drugs on abusive parents so they could go to jail and stop abusing their kids. He could hack into computers and bank accounts. He could kidnap people without getting caught. And he could rob banks and not get caught. That's a lot of wild stories. Yes, and an impressionable young boy like this 12-year-old would take those stories right back home to his mother. But... He also started complaining about how Cheryl would yell at him. He was growing up, and he and his mom were in conflict a lot. Now remember, Cheryl didn't have a normal childhood. So when it came to being a parent, she was short on skills like dealing with a teen and typical teen conflict. Yeah, the parenting skills she learned of putting your child outside like a dog probably were not... uh appreciated or useful in her new life. Exactly, but she did not do that to her son. The only thing she did was she would yell at him a lot, but he hated it. I'm sure he did. She probably felt like she was too soft on him given the childhood she had. I think she probably did. Well, this discussion about her yelling at this boy reportedly triggered Rick. Rick didn't really ever seem to understand boundaries in relationships nor did he respect Cheryl as the parent. He and Stacy began to discuss Cheryl's home life and gossiping about it. 
Rick continued talking to his nephew and started sharing memories of abuse from his childhood and, of course, telling him all about his mother's childhood. And he was encouraging him to see his problems at home as dire. This upset Cheryl. She believed information about her past should come from her, and both she and her husband asked him to stop. But he didn't. In fact, the gossiping continued, the questioning of the boy and encouraging him to work against his mother also continued, and Rick and Stacy got their mother and then Cheryl's husband involved in these discussions. Now, this sounds very ominous, but maybe they thought that they were really protecting a child. Maybe they were so triggered they couldn't see the differences. That's very possible. Rick and Stacy approached Cheryl's husband, suggesting Rick and Stacy could physically throw Cheryl out of her own home. For yelling? Yeah, for yelling. And they wanted to informally demand supervised visitation only between Cheryl and her son. Okay, so this sounds like it was much more about their childhood than this boy's. Yes, I think they were overlaying their problems over this boy quite a bit. Well, her husband, of course, refused this offer. But her husband did take these problems to their pastor, who offered them parenting classes through their local church. They accepted the opportunity, and they attended together. That was probably a really smart move, given that she probably didn't have many parenting skills. And it's pretty amazing that the pastor actually took an appropriate step, rather than going crazy like these two did. Mm -hmm. The nephew had voiced a desire to live with his grandmother at one point, and Marilyn allegedly decided she was going to try to get custody of Cheryl's son, but only if Cheryl tried to put him in a school for troubled boys. Rick said he was opposed to this plan. Yes, he was gossiping about Cheryl yelling at her son, but deep down he believed Cheryl was a good mother. This is what he said after the fact. He knew she was taking steps to become a more effective mother. Despite his lack of personal boundaries, Rick understood that his mother hadn't been that great of a mother, so Cheryl's son was most likely better off with his own mother. But this became the first story of Rick's regarding why he killed his mother. He killed her because he was worried she would take Grandpa's money and use it to take his nephew away from his sister. And this is what Stacy refers to in her suicide note to Cheryl. So we know Rick and Stacy were still talking about it. Okay, so that's one cohesive story. But what's the second? Second... Rick never made it a secret that he was mad at his mother for not protecting him and his siblings, but mostly him, from his father's abuse. Stacy claims she handled her past differently. She didn't dwell on it like Rick did. It didn't keep her up nights. She handled the same situation by compartmentalizing it so she could move her life forward. She felt it was much healthier to acknowledge it happened and just work on moving forward. Sometimes Rick's constant focus on his father's abuse really got to Stacy, and she would have to make him quit ruminating over it. Rick wasn't just mad about the past abuse. He wanted the money his mother had just inherited from their grandfather. You remember Grandpa's money? Mm -hmm. He saw that money as somehow his. Rick alleged he and Stacy discussed killing Marilyn together most any time they were alone, almost from the time he moved into her home. According to Rick's testimony at Stacy's trial, Stacy didn't care how they made it happen. It just needed to happen before their mom spent Grandpa's money as she had already used some of it to make improvements around her home. 
They settled on tasering her and then suffocating her. Stacy denies these discussions ever took place. When did he start telling the story? Before or after he made the plea deal? He started telling the story the very same day that he completed his plea deal. Okay. So the timing is a little suspicious to come up with, oh, well, Stacy really wanted her dead. Right. It's like he finished his plea deal and walked into a conference room in the courthouse and started talking about this. Hmm. Okay. Anyway, on September 10th, 2003, 15 years to the day that her husband had disappeared, 65-year-old Marilyn left work for that evening and no one ever saw her again. Well, not until the following December when her body was found buried in her daughter's backyard, but I'm getting ahead of myself here. On September 11th, 2003, Marilyn's daughter Cheryl alerted the family to her mother's disappearance. She'd gone over to check on her mom when a friend from Marilyn's work had contacted her saying her mother hadn't come to work that morning. That was very unusual for Marilyn, so Cheryl was quite concerned. Her worry intensified when she found her key no longer fit the locks to her mother's house. But she had to go to the junior high open house at school for her son, so she left and came back after the open house. At that point, she was even more alarmed, so she went home and called her sister Stacy. Stacy said she'd seen her mom on Tuesday, September 9th, and that Rick had seen her on the prior Sunday, September 7th, and that nothing had seemed amiss. Rick picked up the extension phone during that call, and after discussing the situation, Cheryl asked them to go over to their mom's house and figure out what was going on. They were to call her as soon as they arrived. They didn't call right back. So Cheryl asked a friend to watch her kids and called her mom's house while she waited for the friend to arrive. She started calling her mother's house and eventually Rick picked up the phone and told her, quote, the nightmare's back. You need to come over here right away. Her blood must have run cold when she heard that. It did. She was said she was afraid for herself. She was afraid for her children. And she was very afraid for her mother, who seemed to be nowhere. Mm-hmm because Rick was referring to his father. His position was that their father had come back and kidnapped their mother in retaliation for all of those social security checks she had stolen from him. See, Cheryl didn't know about the social security checks being cashed by her mother, but both Stacy and Rick did. His intent was to frighten Cheryl and to get her upset in order to help establish the illusion of Marilyn's disappearance. And it really worked. Cheryl was still waiting for child care to arrive. She didn't feel like she could leave her young children alone. Rick called back and said they were calling the police. It sounds like a very horrible and surprising evening. I think so too. It was like 9 o'clock at night when her friend finally came and she was able to go over to her mother's home and the police were already there. When Cheryl got there, she was surprised to see her mother's immaculate house was in disarray. Her mother was very careful to put things away right after she used them, and there were a lot of items that were out in the bathroom and in the kitchen. Rick was pacing about the house, bellowing, The nightmare's back! He's back! He's back! And Stacy was sitting in the living room, silently rocking back and forth, back and forth. 
So it looked like they were both having meltdowns. Yes. Her mother was a very tidy person, like I said, and she was a very secretive person when it came to her own business. And the house was very different this time. This time, there were piles of personal papers everywhere, which was not her mother's style at all. And the house was just so messy. Rick had picked up one of the papers from the table and was waving it back and forth, announcing what was listed on this banking statement. Some of those papers were the evidence that her mother had been defrauding the Social Security Administration, but Cheryl didn't realize that at the time. Some talk came about that perhaps her mother had just left early for her trip. Her mother was going to go to Boston to visit family that weekend, but her mother always told her exactly when she was leaving. Moreover, Cheryl noted that the wrong clothes were missing for that trip. Her mother's entire bedroom closet, where she kept only her work clothes, had been completely cleaned out, and the lanyard in which she kept her ID and her credit cards for traveling, that was there, but empty. She also noticed several family pictures were missing. When she and Stacy got to the kitchen, Cheryl noted the mess and said something terrible has happened. Stacy, who had been completely silent up to that point, said, I've got to talk to Ricky, and she ran out of the house. Hmm. Rick continued pacing through the house that night, bellowing, The nightmare is back. He's back. He's back. In reality, Rick was playing on Cheryl's fears and possibly Stacy's, using emotional manipulation to create the illusion that their mother was simply missing and most likely taken by Richard. He confesses this at Stacy's trial. Stacy at that point wasn't talking either way. She was back to sitting in the living room, rocking back and forth and wringing her hands as Cheryl helped the police fill out their reports. Sometime during this ordeal, Rick randomly mentioned that their mom had asked him to change the locks. Okay, so Rick was single, Cheryl was married, but Stacy was also either married or in this long-term partnership with Susan. So where was Susan? Well, Susan was actually not there because she'd left town to pick up her mother on the morning of the 10th. They were planning to go on a cruise together that weekend. So she was picking her mother up. They were going to leave the dog at her and Stacy's house, and they were going to go on this cruise. So while the family was fretting at Marilyn's house, Susan and her mother actually showed up in Susan's car. And oh. Susan was calling to Stacy from her car, and Stacy turned to Cheryl's husband, who was also there, and said, that's the most she said to me in the past 30 days. She thinks I'm running around on her. So it sounds like there were a lot of troubles in a lot of different areas of these people's lives. Yeah, and also, I mean, I know I'm getting ahead of myself, but maybe she thought she was running around on her because she'd been absent a lot lately. I would think so. I think that that really surprised Cheryl's husband, and that would explain why she wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Anyway, listening to this surprisingly outlandish tale and witnessing the melodramatic results of Rick pacing and screaming and Cheryl crying and Stacy rocking back and forth, the police were confused. These grown adults were saying they had no idea where their dad was, they hadn't seen him for exactly 15 years, but now they were all freaked out and accusing him of kidnapping their mother on the anniversary of his disappearance. But 
they knew it would be a waste of time to try to delve into the psychology of the situation, so they rolled up their sleeves and got busy working on the case. And you won't believe what they found out. But we're out of time for now. We've already covered two of Richard's crazy stories about why his mother is missing, but we're going to add one more. This case takes several turns. It will keep your head spinning with all of their secrets and lies. Next week, we'll talk about what happened to Richard all those years ago and what happened to Marilyn that night. And that's when it gets really crazy. We'd like to thank Jade Brown for our theme music and the Orlando Sentinel, Tampa Bay Times, Mike Schneider at the Associated Press, Court TV, PR Web, and Find My Murderer for a variety of information and photos that we used for this show. You can see the photos for this case at Parasite.org. Just click on the Parasite podcast once you get to the website. Bye for now. Bye. Ashes. Ashes, we all fall down.